Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a special series of discussions about US politics and the Trump presidency, or as we journalists call it, the gift that keeps on giving. I'm Freddie Gray, I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined today by DeRoy Murdoch, who is in London from New York, uh, and he is a contributing editor for National Review and a contributor for Fox News. DeRoy, welcome to London. Freddie, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation to be here. It's, well, I didn't invite you, did I? Uh, well, I just walked through the front door and you were kind enough to let me in and now sit me down and begin to ask me probing questions. You are very welcome here. Thank anytime. you. I feel very welcome. Thank you, Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, Dora, let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump to begin with. Um, it's been quite a week for him. We had the Career Summit. We had the, I thought, extraordinary media hostility to the Career Summit. Um, do you agree with me that a lot of the commentariat we call them, uh, show just how ridiculous they are about Donald Trump, and in doing so, only really help him. Do you think that's right? I think that's absolutely correct. Um, I think if they if they want to hurt Donald Trump, what these people should do probably is just be quiet, because the 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 level of uh, picayune uh, comments and attacks on Trump all the time on every subject uh, just help to underlie the notion that, that uh, he's being attacked by uh, what he calls the fake news. I think he referred to the fake news as the, the, the biggest problem facing America today or something like that. And uh, you see the way they behaved in the light of this president of the United States going to North Korea, the very first one to do it. Uh, Obama couldn't do it. JFK couldn't do it. Eisenhower couldn't do it. And here comes Donald Donald J. Trump, the former reality TV, reality TV star. And uh, he's able finally to sit down with Kim Jong-un. Remember, just six months ago, People were terrified watching these atomic tests, the, the missiles flying over Japan, each one with a little uh, further range until the point where we thought these things actually could start landing on uh, Anchorage, then Seattle, and then San Francisco, and then Los Angeles, and maybe points uh, inland uh, into the uh, the uh, middle or even the east coast of the United States. Uh, I remember having a conversation with a, a Korean uh, grocer in New York City, and, and we were looking at each other saying, you know, do you think we're going to see bombs flying back and forth? And we were quite concerned about this. Mm. Six months later, here is uh, President Trump in Singapore trying to bring peace. And the response from the same people who screamed at him saying, what a warmonger, he's going to take us to war, now is, oh my God, what's he doing? He's giving away the store. How, how dare he? Yes. So no matter what he does, even trying to bring peace, these people who normally are pacifists and more dovish are screaming and yelling at him about that too. But one part of the complaint that I suppose had some validity to it, which is was that if Obama had done this, you would be saying he's palling around with terrorists. He's uh, and there was a lot of that, you know, with the Iran deal and and so on. What's the difference there? Do you think? Well, I, I think the difference uh, with at least with Obama and the Iran nuke deal versus whatever got agreed to in uh, in Singapore. I didn't see anything in the Singapore agreement saying that we're going to take uh, literal plane loads of laundered cash and, and fly them uh, into Kim Jong-un's hands. Um, I suspect that if there is a, a deal, there will be some kind of, of a, a verification regime that is at least mildly serious rather than utterly comical, which is what I would describe the, quote, verification, unquote, uh, regime under the Iran nuke deal. Mm. I mean, that thing literally says it prohibits inspectors from visiting any Iranian military facility. I mean, why would anybody look for weapons at a military facility? That's the last place you check, of course. Now, if you do find, if, if there is a facility they do want to uh, check that's non-military, the Iranians can have a waiting period of 24 to 78 days in which they can 
do whatever they want with whatever may be unusual or interesting there, uh, hide it, cover it up, uh, move it off somewhere else. Uh, and, and Obama agreed to this. And, and then the last thing about the deal is it's not signed. Uh, if any anyone listening to the sound of, of our voices uh, got a plumbing contractor to come in to put in a new shower or fix a toilet or whatever it is, uh, you would get a, a contract and have the plumber sign it so he doesn't come back and charge you double or triple. Obama never got this thing signed. Was it's that just so a piece he didn't of paper. have to put it through Congress? Uh, it, it could be that, perhaps, but because it's not signed, it, it, it has no force of law. It's just a piece of paper. As if I were to take a napkin and say, this is, uh, you know, you, I, I promised to build you a ski house in Aspen, and you try to take me to court when I don't build it. And I say, all right, do you see the signature on that? Yes. Your case dismissed. Well, nobody would do that again with a plumbing contractor. Obama actually agreed to a nuclear uh, disarmament agreement which isn't even signed, which is just a level, it shows the level of his naivete and that this brilliant constitutional scholar has not very much between those big ears of his. Well, yes, because we've, you know, we've heard a lot that Trump is the anti-Obama and that he sort of is determined to undo everything Obama did or, or to just show what a bad president he was. And actually, having, a, you know, I'm not a great critic of Obama, I'm not a strong critic of Obama as a lot of Americans are, but he has Trump really has shown him to be quite an ineffective president, and and it's becoming more obvious as time goes on. I think that's very true. Uh, as you may recall, I think it was about a year ago, if my uh, timing, if my memory is correct, uh, when um, in uh, Syria Assad used chemical weapons against his people, and within a couple of days the U.S. went and bombed a uh, military facility. I think it was a military air base and blew up the runways or something like this. And the response of the U.S., and I must say even some of his left-wing critics said, oh, okay, well, I guess he finally uh, finally enforced Obama's red line. Mm-hmm. And he showed exactly what Obama could have done. He didn't have to send 50,000 U.S. troops into Damascus. He just needed some, to say something uh, to indicate, okay, you crossed the red line. We said we respond. Here's the response. And Trump showed how easy it was. Yeah. All Obama needed to have done is to blow up a, a few runways. Everyone said, okay, you enforce the red line. Instead, he didn't do that. And that was one of the biggest uh, biggest uh, reductions in U.S. credibility in my lifetime. Well, and also another aspect with, with Kim uh, and with North Korea is just they really have seemed to have, you know, everyone's saying that they haven't actually given anything away. But certainly, if you look at how the negotiations came into being, they've rolled over. I mean, they said that, yes, they said they didn't want John Bolton to have anything to do with it. He's sitting right next to Trump at the meetings. They they pulled the plug. Trump pulls the plug. They come back keener. And it's clearly got to do with the pressure on China and tariffs. And China is forcing North Korea to the table. But he's made a, an extremely intractable, difficult problem seem like something that can be solved with his very simplistic sounding art of the deal. This is very true. Uh, you know, I, I heard, um, I think when... Uh, at the, the end of the uh, summit in Singapore, somebody on the air, I forget which journalist in the U.S., said, uh, uh, oh, uh, Trump has given away the store. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Are you on drugs? I mean, look, we, first of all, uh, we brought this guy to the table, which nobody's been able to do. Uh, he had that, uh, as you say, that um, uh, comments he made about Bolton, and then we got the, the so-called breakup letter, and then they came running back with, within hours. Oh, sorry, we didn't mean it. Let's talk. Yeah. Uh, and then we've had uh, no more uh, atomic tests, no more missiles flying. The uh, nuclear test facility was blown up with the press there. Now, maybe they blew up half of it, not the whole thing. I don't know. But it, yeah. it's certainly not intact anymore. Uh, and then he's actually uh, signed. We have a signature on a piece of paper where he says he wants to engage in, in uh, the denuclearization of the, of the 
Korean Peninsula. These are major things. These are major uh, concessions on the part of the North Korean government. And the notion that Donald J. Trump has given away the story, I think, is utterly laughable. And again, shows uh, just how completely feckless is the criticism of Trump by the people, in, uh, by his critics in the U.S. who want to block him at every single solitary path on every single solitary issue. And he's he's got these bodies back, which was he oh, was so yeah. He well, was, well, correct. He, he, that in as well, a sort of too. I, I, you've got the the. the uh, I, thank you for mentioning that's very important uh there i don't know what the number hundreds or maybe thousands of american uh, americans who were killed in the korean war still over there their remains will be coming back and then not just those people but we've got the three uh living uh, koreans uh, who were held prisoner and they were released again even before the the summit so again this is all tremendous stuff these are huge uh steps forward and again obama could have tried to get these people back and he didn't uh, you know, we got Otto Warmbier back. Unfortunately, the poor young man uh, died after he'd been tortured by the North Koreans, but we got him back before he died. Uh, and all these are very positive things. So I don't know where the store is that Trump apparently has given away, but uh, maybe it's just uh, something these people is on the left are hallucinating. Yes. And would it be fair to say that you have not always been the biggest fan of Donald Trump? You would, you, you, I wouldn't, I don't think you were ever a sort of never Trumper, were you? No, I, I, I'll describe to you what I call my journey uh, throughout the, through the 2016 uh, GOP primaries. I first supported Scott Walker. Yeah. Uh, and then um, Carly Fiorina. I was all in for Marco Rubio. Uh, in fact, I was up at the New Hampshire primaries uh, covering his uh, rallies and so on and writing very positive things about him. I, I had a lot of hope in him. And then uh, that one, he went away. And then uh, Ted Cruz, who I, who I, I guess I have uh, New York State when the primaries took place. I voted for Ted Cruz. Then Ted Cruz lost. And the last man standing was uh, was Donald J. Trump. And, so you had a long journey. It was a long journey. It was a long journey to get there. But uh, when he finally locked up the Republican nomination, had the, the votes for the nomination, I wrote a piece basically saying the following, that uh, Donald J. Trump was not my first choice, he's my fifth choice, but he is more or less equivalent to the last helicopter leaving the roof of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. And the pilot might be a little crazy, uh, the inside of the helicopter may have a lot of very gaudy gold fixtures that look a little unusual. Uh, there may be some people on the chopper we've never seen before who look a, a little unusual as well. Uh, but the fact is, oh, and the helicopter may not be going to Hong Kong, perhaps it's going to Kuala Lumpur. But the important thing is it's getting off of this roof. And I recommend you get on it because if you don't get on it, then you've got to deal with Hillary Clinton and the Viet Cong. Uh, or the, the Viet Cong, as I call them, and uh, then you can decide uh, or maybe negotiate with her on which re-education camp you're going to, uh, where you'll spend the next 10 years. And that was basically my view. I said, look, it's either Hillary Clinton or it's Donald J. Trump, and it sure as hell can't be Hillary Clinton. And thank God, the United States of America and the West dodged a bullet. It was very close, but we that bullet whizzed by, and, uh, and the election of Donald J. Trump made that possible. And there were a huge number of Americans who thought like this. I spoke to, not millions, I spoke to hundreds of Americans who would say things like, Hillary Clinton will be the end of this country. So for them, it was a sort of existential election, and, and Trump was the, the least bad choice. But I get the impression a lot of these people are now starting to warm up to the idea of him and warm up to the way he gets things done or at least makes them enjoy having a president. Well, you know, I, I think that a lot of people, uh, I think a lot of the never-Trumpers have been close to silenced at this point. Uh, they can still say things are chaotic, which they often are. Mm -hmm. um, things are not always run as smoothly as we'd like. Um, they can complain about his personality and he's loud and bombastic and all these things. These are all true. But if you, particularly among the Republican never-Trumpers, Look at the fact that we have a 21% corporate tax, that uh, we have the individual mandate 
in Obamacare repealed. Uh, we have Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. I believe last I heard, 12 new uh, appellate court judges on the federal level and then another number of uh, uh, trial federal trial court uh, judges. Uh, we just had something called the uh, Right to Try bill signed about t- uh, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. For the first time, this now will allow terminally ill patients to get access to uh, experimental drugs, which are not fully approved. They're, they're approved for safety, but not yet for effectiveness by the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, and all the way up through Obama, the, the argument was, well, we know you only have three weeks, three weeks to live, but this drug might be dangerous, so you can't have it. Yes. And the person then drops dead. And now Trump's argument is, and his signature on the on the Republican-sponsored uh, legislation basically says, all right, you have three weeks to live, we'll give you a right to try this. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work, you're going to die anyway, and if it works, then you're saved. And maybe you don't live another 20 years, but if you live long enough to go to your, your daughter's wedding or your, your grand, uh, grandchild's uh, communion or whatever it may be, then that's a beautiful thing. Yes. And, and these are all things, uh, and of course, the move to Jerusalem, the U.S. Embassy being moved to Jerusalem. These are policies that for which conservatives have written and argued and debated and so on and, and advocated for decades. And these things are now happening thanks to Donald J. Trump. So, uh, you know, you can argue with the style, but I don't think you can argue with the substance, with the sole exception, I think, of, of the free trade issue, which uh, where I think you do have some legitimate uh, areas of complaint. Well, yes, it's interesting you mentioned free trade because with the midterms approaching, there's a lot of talk about how Trump is really, the Republican Party now is just the party of Trump and his candidates in marginal seats have to embrace a sort of Trumpist worldview if they, if they want to win. Is that over said that line well, people say this but again the, the quote-unquote trumpist line is with the except with the significant exception of free trade where, where I, I think he definitely t- uh, takes a different uh, look at things as mm. the, uh, versus previous republican presidents uh it's the conservative agenda the the, the quote-unquote trumpist agenda outside of the free trade area is basically what uh, the heritage foundation and other conservative uh, groups have been pushing. I'd say even even Cato on many things. Deregulation. Uh, uh, the tremendous. I didn't, I, uh, yes, lowering taxes tremendously. Uh, deregulation. Um, uh, a huge effort at accountability. There was another bill, a uh, couple of bills that uh, President Trump has signed, which make it easier to fire incompetent uh, or even corrupt uh, federal bureaucrats in the, in the Veterans Administration. Uh, we have uh, had an enormous scandal a couple of years ago where uh, at the Phoenix VA hospital and others, you had uh, uh, patients waiting and waiting and waiting to see doctors so long that they literally dropped dead. These wonderful veterans who fought to defend the United States of America and fought for freedom from World War II through Vietnam, even the Iraq and, and Afghan uh, wars, uh, came back and needed to see doctors. They'd wait and wait and wait, sometimes to the point where they dropped dead before they could see doctors. And the incompetent bureaucrats who not only allowed this to happen, but destroyed records to cover it up, which means obstruction of justice and and, and uh, violations of the Records Act and so on. Rather than getting fired, these people were promoted. They got bonuses. This is what happened under Obama. Obama didn't punish these people. He gave them bonuses and and, and kept them in their jobs and promoted them, which is shocking and disgusting. Uh, and what Trump has done as a, con- as a result of his uh, rise to power is to make it easier to fire these people, uh, easier to sack them. And this again, effort to introduce some level of accountability into this tremendously incompetent bureaucracy of ours mm-hmm. is the kind of thing Republicans and, and conservatives and libertarians uh, have been, uh, we've been arguing for these sorts of things for decades. He's finally doing them. And so, you've, talk, you've talked before about how in the private sector, he's, he's, or 
his administration has started to encourage business where business hasn't really felt encouraged. For can you give me some concrete ways in which he's been doing that? Or which sure. Think? Well, I would say you know I, I mentioned lower taxes. I mean, twenty one percent corporate tax sure. makes America the uh, if, perhaps with the exception of Ireland. I think we have the most competitive uh, uh, tax rate in the OECD. If I'm not wrong, uh, tremendous deregulation. Another aspect of it is uh, uh, more rapid approval of permits. One of the awful things the left does is uh, they can say, yes, your project's approved, which is great. Or they could say, no, it's not. And you can say, all right, we'll go do something else. What instead they will do is they'll wait and wait and wait and just have you waiting for an answer, waiting for an answer. And you, you, you don't get your project approved, nor do you move on to something else. You just sit there in limbo, like the Keystone Pipeline. I actually wrote a piece uh, when Obama was president. I said, look, Obama, would you either approve the pipeline, in which case we get it going, or just kill it so these people can move on with their lives and figure, okay, I'm not going to build a pipeline. I'll get a job somewhere else. I'll go back to school and get new, new skills. If you're the person putting up the money, you go build a bridge or build a tunnel if you're not going to do a pipeline. And rather than do that, they just went on for something like, I don't know, eight or nine years without giving anybody any answer. Uh, Trump came in, he approved the Keystone XL pipeline, and, and it's it's being implemented. So one of the things he wants to do is make sure that when people apply for these to do these big projects, uh, that they get a, either a green light or at least a red light within mm. a year or two, rather than this blinking yellow light that goes on for a decade or longer. Uh, but I think independent of those concrete policy differences I just described to you, a, a huge um, and, and much more nebulous but also important change he's made is tone. When Obama was in the White House, he famously said, referring to people, entrepreneurs, uh, you didn't build that business, we did. Unbelievable. That was mm -hmm. one of the most deeply insulting and slashing attacks on entrepreneurs in the country that I've seen in my life. That was one of the most horrifying thing that man said of many, many horrifying comments. Um, in contrast to that awful uh, anti-business tone, you have from, uh, from uh, President Trump a much more positive attitude, which is, we're proud of you, keep up the good work, create some jobs, uh, you know, help us rebuild this country, help make us prosperous again. And I think just having, knowing there's somebody in the White House who's, if you're a businessman or businesswoman, who's rooting for you rather than rooting against you, makes it much likelier that people will uh, invest in projects, build things, invent things, hire people, promote people. And you're seeing unemployment hitting such uh, incredible lows now. Our unemployment rate currently is 3.8%. Uh, that ties the unemployment rate, I believe, in, if not mistaken, April 2000. And the time before that, when we saw 3.8% unemployment, was December to, uh, December 1969 under Nixon. Mm. We currently have record uh, low black unemployment, record low Hispanic unemployment. And the unemployment rate for adult women in the United States of America, I believe, is 3.2%. And that uh, the last time we saw that figure was in 1953 under Eisenhower, 65 years ago. So, so uh, uh, Donald J. Trump is bringing unemployment down to Eisenhower level, uh, Eisenhower levels. And what this is could mean is that you could see uh, a reversal of the usual midterm process, which is that the ruling party loses in the midterms. I mean, I think I know a lot of Republicans are getting quite excited about winning both the houses now in the midterms. Do you think that's realistic? Do you have doubts about that? I've said all along that uh, it is not written in stone, it's not written in sand, it's not written anywhere that the GOP has to lose uh, lose uh, Congress 
lose either house or, or lose seats in either house uh, in November. And uh, I've heard so many Republicans, particularly in the first three, four months of this year, saying, okay, well, we're going to lose the House. You know, how many seats it's going to be? And the people, we had 40 incumbent Republican House members, including some committee chairmen, who were so scared. They said, oh, well, I'm not running for re-election. And they're, you know, almost quite literally packing their bags and leaving. Some of them actually didn't wait till their terms ended next January. Some of them left in the middle of, of this year, just in the middle of their terms. Said, all right, I'm out of here. Bye. Uh, all based on this notion that, oh, my God, we're going to lose. And then, as I have written over and over and said on television, said on the radio, uh, look, you guys in Congress passed tax cuts. You've been deregulating. Again, this more positive business attitude. Have faith in your own program. Have faith in your own ideas. Uh, what will happen is the economy will pick up. People will go back to work. People will feel more positive. Uh, the Democrats did not. Every single solitary Democrat voted against uh, the Trump GOP tax cuts. He didn't have one Democrat support them. So every Republican can uh, very justifiably can beat the hell out of the Democrats and say, you know, if you've got a new job, your business is expanding, you're paying your bills more easily, thank the Republicans. You can't thank the Democrats. And my opponent is a member of that party. You need to vote against him and you need to vote for me. Yeah. And on that theory, I think the Republicans ought to be able to keep the Senate, keep the House, and possibly even pick up seats in both places. And I, that's the line I've had. I felt that all along. And I think as things pick up and, and, and the generic ballot number is now improving, in some of the generic ballots, the GOP is actually now outranking the Democrats. Uh, back in December, I think it was a 16-point gap um, favoring the Democrats. There was a Rasmussen poll a couple of weeks ago that actually favored the, the GOP by six points. So that's a 22% gain. So I, I wish these Republicans had listened to that, uh, not started jumping out the windows, which they shouldn't have done. Uh, and I think in order to keep the Senate and House, uh, keep the economy going, and they need to continue putting positive uh, pro-market, pro-limited government bills on, on President Trump's desk, and I think he'll sign them. Um, one, one aspect that I've found fascinating is the black Republican vote now is at 16, polling around 16%, something like that, which is a Democrat said this to me if he said if he polls about anything above 12 we'll never win again and uh i mean this is groundbreaking for a republican absolutely it is look uh i i've been as, as a black american You're black, we should say for you should you, you for can't notice listeners. you don't can't notice this on the radio but i'm black anyway uh I have been arguing since uh, the Reagan days that the GOP needs to make more overtures to black voters. Mm -hmm. And it ought to be done on, on more or less this uh, argument. Uh, if you're living in a black, a black neighborhood in America, the chances are uh, you'd ask people, you know, how are your schools doing? Are your kids learning anything? Oh, oh, the schools are terrible. All right, okay. Well, let's see. How's the economy? Are you a lot of jobs? Or is your neighborhood thriving? Oh, okay. It's not doing so great. And uh, how about the crime? Is the crime in the white areas? Oh, no, it's in the black areas. Okay. And uh, and your mayor? Oh, your mayor's a Democrat. Oh, and your city council? Oh, they're Democrats. On oh, the board of education, they're a bunch of Democrats. And the police chief is a Democrat. So tell me again, why are you voting for the Democrats? And what have the Democrats done for you lately? I think every Republican should be should walk into every black church, union hall, uh, meeting facility, and talk directly to black voters and ask them that question. And the question, the answer will be, I guess the the schools are not very good, and the economy is not growing as well here as in other neighborhoods. The crime is in my area. So yeah, why am I voting Democrat? And, and this is an argument the GOP ought to make. And you're correct; they don't need to win a hundred percent or 60% or 30% of the black vote. If they get 15 to 20%, and certainly, certainly if they get 25% of the black vote, it's good night, Irene, for the Democrats. Because yes. that big a chunk of their base, if it falls over, the entire Democrat tree falls to the ground. But it seems like quite a... I mean, obviously you've been saying it for a long time, but it's it's odd that it hasn't been the Republican strategy. Because the, I think the Republicans got obsessed with the Hispanic vote, and they thought Hispanics are socially conservative, and they just sort of wrote off the 
the black vote as something that wasn't for them. And- uh, they have done that. And the, the sad thing is uh, that the Democrats take blacks for granted, and the Republicans have said, well, we're never, never going to win them, so why bother? Yeah. The first person that I, who I've seen, who's made, who, at least at the presidential level, who's made a real effort uh, to get black votes was Donald J. Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was nominated summer of 2016, and he visited um, a black church in Detroit. He visited a black church in Flint, Michigan. He visited a uh, black ch- charter school in a black neighborhood in, I think it was Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and was gave a speech, I think, at, a, at that charter school and then sat in a classroom and, and talked to some kids. And uh, I was amazed. It was a Republican presidential nominee actually making a pitch for the black vote. And he said at many, many of his rallies, said, you know, I say to, to black voters, you know, uh, what the hell do you have to lose? I think was his exact yes, eloquent, his, his, his beautiful Jeffersonian rhetoric. What the hell do you have to lose? Yeah. And I remember uh, when he said that, when he, that was his pitch during the campaign. And I remember when he said it, a lot of the media was like, how patronizing that is and how insulting to black people. But it seems like black people didn't find it that insulting. Uh, no. Now, he didn't win a large number of the black vote, but he won 8%. Yeah. That doesn't sound very high. But the previous GOP nominee, uh, Mitt Romney, got six percent. So he over delivered, over uh, overperformed rather, versus Romney by thirty three percent. That's mm. pretty good for a guy who was being attacked as basically a closet Klansman. <laughs> he also won thirteen percent of black men. Regarding Hispanics, I believe he got, if I remember correctly, it was I think it was twenty eight percent of the Hispanic vote, and he got thirty two percent of Hispanic men. Almost one out of three Hispanic men voted for for. Donald Trump. And again, given all of the discussion about uh, Hispanics and Mexicans and the border and build a wall. It was his tweeting of himself eating a taco. Uh, All that, yes. Taco salad, I think, et cetera, right? (laughs) So uh, you'd think he'd get one or two percent. He got uh, almost one out of three uh, Hispanic men. So I think if you you couple that out, out, that effort and the tremendously performing economy and the fact that Democrats have no answer other than resist, 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 I think it's entirely possible that you will see higher numbers for his, uh, among blacks and Hispanics voting GOP this fall. And if he runs for re-election, I think he'll continue that outreach. And uh, I think he'll make even deeper in, in, inroads into the Democrat base. But one thing that maybe uh, the Republican Party are sort of overlooking is just quite how powerful the grassroots resistance is. I mean, we have something similar here in Corbynism that the right just kept on thinking there's no way this this is you know the crazies and there's no way this can be a real phenomenon but it does mobilize people um and if the democrats can get their party in order and can find some way of tapping into that base new base uh it could be a real force and i mean i think do you think perhaps republicans should be a bit more aware of how serious the 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 real left in america is now yeah there are two things one is uh well, as we see to use couple of political science terms, direction and intensity. Yeah. In terms of direction, uh, the notion of a moderate or, or conservative Democrat is just about dead in the U.S. Uh, the Democrat parties move left, 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 uh, to the point where Dianne Feinstein actually almost didn't get nominated in California because she was too conservative. Yeah. Dianne Feinstein has a, an American conservative union rating of, I don't know, 6 7%. Yeah. And then she was being attacked by very seriously by people in California. Oh, she's... She's too middle of the road. We can't have her. Now, she, in fact, did get the nomination, but it was it was much more of a slog for her than you would expect. Uh, and to be fair, the right, I think, has moved to the right from where it used to be. The middle is emptier, and both extremes, I think, are, are much more populated. But the left has, has, has continued to move very left. So in terms of direction, they're, they're much more in that, uh, much more Bernie Sanders-like. And then in terms of intensity, they're turning up in big numbers. 
any any time. I mean, you saw this, for example, we had this uh, very tragic uh, shooting episode in uh, Florida, and a day or two later, at ten thousand people in the streets screaming. I mean, their ability to do like this and have ten thousand people in the streets is, is mind blowing. Yeah. So they have a lot of very motivated people. They will crawl over uh, lava to get to the poles, and the GOP needs to understand that, which means that our people need to be able to crawl, need to want to crawl over lava to get to the poles. Yeah. And and I think the turnout is absolutely vital. So the last thing we need is Republicans or conservatives saying, "Well, I think I'll I'll, I'll just stay home and watch TV." No, no, they, everybody. Uh, to the right of Susan Collins, who's one of our most moderate uh, Republican senators, uh, needs to go to the polls and, and, and pull the lever for Republican candidates. Dora, I'm afraid I'm going to actually put you on the spot here and ask you whether you will do predictions for me for the midterms and for Donald Trump in 2020. Um, I'm only doing this because you've come into the office and it's just a cruel thing that we like to do to people when they go in. Yeah, I'm usually very reluctant to make predictions because I don't have ESP and I have no idea what's going to happen five minutes from now versus five months from now. But my sense is that the GOP will keep the Senate. They probably will pick up seats for the, at least for the simple reason that the Democrats, let's see if I remember correctly, I think the Republicans are defending eight seats in the Senate. The Democrats are defending 25. So they just have a lot more a lot more pieces on the on the scoreboard, if you will, or on the, the field of battle, shall we say, and a lot more opportunities to knock them out. And again, if, if uh, the economy is thriving and if we have peace with North Korea or, or it looks like things are moving well and the Republicans can say we're the party of peace and prosperity and the Democrats say resist, 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 Russiagate, yeah. you know, I, I think it's going to be very hard for them to have any kind of credible alternative to that. So I think that will allow the GOP to keep the Senate. And likewise, I think the GOP will keep the House. Uh, they may pick up or lose a few seats one way or the other. But but I, I think uh, ultimately Nancy Pelosi will, will not become the Speaker of the House again, mm. which would be a very good thing. She is amazingly ineffective, it seems to me. And, and I don't understand how the Democrat Party doesn't sort of come to realise the damage that she seems to do. Uh, I, I spoke to a senior Republican in London the other day, and he said, every time Nancy Pelosi opens her mouth, I want to write her a cheque because she's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, she's got this sort of Marie Antoinette nature. I, I call her Marie Antoinette Pelosi, um, referring to the fact people are getting, I think the number is now 540, roughly 540. No, it's more than that. It's about 580 companies uh, in the U.S. approximately uh, have given their employees bonuses, uh, pay increases, uh, better health benefits, uh, charitable deductions, investing in training, et cetera, et cetera, because of the... Uh, Trump GOP tax cuts. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what's kind of funny there, we have something in the U.S. called Fight for 15, which is the Democrat and the left's efforts to get people uh, $15, million, $15 minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of companies now are, because of the tax cuts, because they have more money, they've raised their own internal minimum wages at or above $15. So this is happening without the government's uh, requirement, which is driving the Democrats crazy because they want they want to tell people to do this. They don't want them to do this on their own. So that all that's going on. And Nancy Pelosi's response to that was that uh, uh, these are crumbs, just crumbs, yeah. she said. And she's repeated it several times. Uh, and a lot of people... Look at she doesn't like, sound well, like an elitist at all then. Well, she's got five properties, including a, a winery up in uh, either Napa or Sonoma County, California. Yeah. She lives uh, at the top of Pacific Heights, one of the most beautiful homes in San Francisco, yes. uh, which I think is now the most expensive real estate in the country. So yeah, so if you get an extra two or $3,000, I guess if you're compared to Nancy Pelosi's uh, lifestyle, that those are crumbs. Yes. If you're a hardworking person in the middle class, that's real money. And so you think with a bit of midterm success, Trump will then move on and assuming 
that there are not major blow-ups, which is quite a big assumption with Donald Trump. He will, He's looking like a two-term president. I think so. Uh, I think if, if things continue as they are, and I, I think ultimately the, the whole Russiagate thing will turn out to be nothing, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, that probe can't go on forever. And at some point, Mueller's got to say, all right, we looked and we looked, we didn't find anything. Now, uh, we may find somewhere the, the smoking gun tape where we find that uh, that Trump uh, speaks uh, flawless Russian and he and Putin were talking about how to uh, uh, how to uh, make it so that Hillary Clinton's plane wouldn't land in Wisconsin so she yeah. couldn't campaign there. I guess maybe they toyed with the GPS or something like this. And maybe if that smoking gun comes out with, with Trump speaking Russian, then it'll turn out that Russiagate has some, has some validity to it. But at least for now, it looks like there's nothing there. We wasted something like a year and a half uh, of the, the American people's attention and time and money on this. Well, and, and also that people really aren't... I mean, people are sort of following it still, but the Russiagate now is sort of going into the Trump organization and there probably is dirt there. Any big global company will have, that's done deals in a lot of countries will have, will have dodgy things that will come out. And But what seems interesting is actually some dodgy things about the Trump organization have already come out and it doesn't really seem to hurt him because people who want to him or who aren't really that bothered about the other Russiagate stuff, just it washes over them. So it's almost the Democrats' fault for making so much out of nothing that now when something bad comes out, a lot of people just shrug it off. I think that's true. Uh, I think their mistake in this was raising the stakes so high that if it turns out, all we know for now is that uh, Donald Trump Jr. had a meeting in Trump Tower with this Russian lawyer who apparently is tied to the Kremlin. They met for about 20 minutes. Nothing came of it. She walked out the door and that was that. Um, I think we've been led to believe by the Democrats that uh, Russian agents were sitting in Trump Tower, you know, picking which precincts uh, in which to campaign and, and, and which uh, which which counties to, to, to help Trump win the election. There's this strange British element in a lot of it, which is, I've always found amusing. There's British spies are involved. Christopher Steele. There was, the, a, my, there was my, a Rob Goldstone, guys, a very ridiculous-looking ex-tabloid journalist PR guy. Um, I think the first conversation between Papadopoulos and the Australian was in London, civil servant was in London. Everything dodgy very, happens here. Everything dodgy happens in London. This is why London. you've come here. That's why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> the, dodgiest, the dodgiest city in the world. Dodge. Global London. Global London, yes. <laughs> Capital of dodgedom. Um, DeRoy, thank you so much for joining us. Great honour to have you here uh, and here in, in, in person, which is um, thrilling for us all. It's a joy to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer. And we'll even throw in a Spectator Moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer.